Oh, g'day. Great to see you and great to see old friends down from Queensland as well. Uh, welcome back to Sydney. Maybe you'll stay this time. I don't know if the lockdowns are better here or worse, but anyway, uh, why don't we pray? We're going to make a fresh start in worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for your love, and we pray that our church and our lives might overflow in praise to you, our King and our Saviour. Teach us what that means today. In Jesus' name, amen. Almost feels like with this period of COVID, the last couple of years, the lockdowns and are we back? Are we not? Is Omicron coming out? What, what's next? That we've been in a bit of a period of hibernation. I don't know if you feel like you've been hibernating, uh, curled up in our homes, a bit like an American grizzly bear, uh, nestled away. But when the winter's over, uh, the bear pokes its head out of the den. Uh, it's getting ready to come back into the real world, but it takes several days, maybe several weeks even, uh, to really get going again. At first, it pokes its head out of the hole, looks around and thinks, nah, goes back inside, and then it does it again next week and thinks, nah, and then it comes out again a week later. And it might take five or six attempts of the bear poking its head out before it even bothers to step outside the door. Uh, and when it does, it, it comes all the way out, but its muscles are all stiff and sore, and you know, bears do the stretching and the yawning, and, and they're really funny because they're wobbly on their feet. You can imagine this giant thing that could eat you that's uh, wobbling around like a drunk. Uh, and I think for our church, it's been a bit like that, coming out of COVID hibernation, sort of waking up, still a bit dozy, and we're a bit wobbly on our feet and needing to stretch as a church, you can you can see it in all kinds of ways, can't you? You see it personally. Uh, people are slowly coming back in. There's a few we haven't seen, and we wonder where they might be, and so on. Uh, technologically, uh, we can't quite remember how the sound system works, and all the gears change, and so the slides come up or they don't come up, and then you're like, "Whoa!" Um, the band at the other services they haven't picked up an instrument in two years' time, and so. That, that's, that's a bit like, well, what do we do? How do we play? How does this song go again? Um, financially, we've certainly been hibernating that way. Uh, and I suspect we're all a bit wobbly spiritually as well. Stiff from not having exercised many of our spiritual muscles for some time. Uh, perhaps also a bit starved spiritually from, uh, whether from spiritual starvation, uh, or from only eating spiritual junk food while we've been cooped up. So we're spending a few weeks uh, going back to first principles and asking ourselves, what kind of church do we want to be? Here's an opportunity for a fresh start uh, as we exit the cave, but, but what do we want that fresh start to look like? Dave mentions changes and, you know, well, no, not change. You know, and all some of us are going, yes, finally change. Uh, uh, some of us are going, well, tinker maybe, but, you know, not, not with this. Sir. Anyway, um, but wherever we, you know, might end up with those questions and what it might look like, much more fundamentally important to answer is the question, have we got our priorities sorted out? How, do we know what God wants us to be as a church? Have we not just understood but taken to heart and and treasured his priorities for our lives and our life together? And do those priorities shape what we do and what we program and how we operate together? And so for the next few weeks, 
we're going to be stepping outside of our normal habit of working through particular books of the Bible to see if we can gather from the whole of the Scriptures what God's heart and desire is for us as his church. And today might seem like a strange place to begin, but I want to challenge us that first and foremost, God wants us to be a worshipping church, a worshipping church, and that as we make a fresh start together, it should be a fresh start in worship. Now, I realise as soon as I say that, there's going to be all kinds of confusion about that. What does he mean? The word worship conjures up all kinds of things to different ones of us, and maybe your heart's beating a little faster with anxiety. Uh, maybe it's beating a little faster with excitement. Or maybe you think Joe's just gone a little bit crazy over lockdown. You can decide that for yourself later. Uh, but the real issue is that the word worship has become very confused in the modern day church and the modern day world. In some cases, the word worship has been totally hijacked by the modern church, away from what God means by it. But in most cases, it's just been dumbed down, limited, minimised, so that it's but a poor shadow of what it's meant to be, uh, or it's confused with other things, which are good things, but they're not worship. I suspect the most common confusion is when people hear the word worship, their mind goes straight to what? What do you think of when you hear the word worship? Church, okay, yeah, some people think of church. They think it's about the activity and they might ask, where, where do you worship? I worship at St Barnabas, right? That's just another synonym for, for where do you go to church, so that's what it is. Uh, I think a lot of other people, the younger people, if they heard the word worship, what they mind would go to is music. Uh, you might hear someone say, that church has a great worship band. Or, you know, our church, we start with the worship and then we have the teaching, right? And it's just a synonym for music, or sometimes it's just a particular style of music within that. Uh, you know, there's hymns, which are the old ones that we sing, and then there's the praise songs, which are the fast ones, and then there's the worship songs, which are the slow ones, where it's just you and God doing it together in your heart. But you know, kind of. But but worship in the Bible predates music. There wasn't even music when the first worshipper was around. Adam was worshipping in the garden. His great-great-great-grandchildren invented music in Genesis 4.21. So that's not what worship is. Uh, and nor is it just going to church, the worship service. Uh, other people hear worship and they think of extreme religious deeds, um, dark rituals, pilgrimage to holy sites, maybe human sacrifices. The Incas worshipped that way, the gods, didn't they? You know, they offered young girls to, uh, to, to their gods. But worship in the Bible doesn't mean any of those things. It means to give someone greater than you their worth. That, that's what worship is. It's to glorify them. Uh, it's to honour them. Now, most commonly in the Bible, that's signified physically by by actually lying down on the ground before, bowing before them, laying prostrate. Uh, in fact, one of the words that's most commonly translated as worship, Latreia, it means to bow down before someone, but that's to worship. But it's more than just an act of obeisance of physically laying down, isn't it? As the Bible develops, to worship someone is to, to value them above all, to treasure them, to adore them, to offer yourself to them, to glorify them. Sure, that might include singing, that might include going to church, and it might include doing particular activities, but a life of worship 
is so much more than that. And to define worship as just those things, it's like saying, well, uh, breathing is singing. No, no, breathing is breathing, right? You just, you've got to do it, yeah? And you've got to live a life of worship. So there's confused worship, but there's also false worship. And, and I think there's two kinds of false worship in the Bible. There's the, there's the worship of the wrong things, false things, things which do not deserve to be worshipped. That's, that's one kind of false worship. But then there's also the, the wrong worship of the right thing. Uh, that's also something in the Bible. And so there's the worship of false things, where instead of worshipping God, our creator and redeemer and king, people give their lives, they lay down their lives, they bow before, they devote themselves to and worship other things. Now, Romans chapter 1 uh, talks about how we're all predisposed to do that by nature. Uh, verse 21 of Romans 1, For although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. What did they swap it for? They swapped it for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals and reptiles. And so people are always worshipping all sorts of other things instead of the true and living God. Things that are from this world, they worship them as if they are God. Sometimes they even call them gods. Uh, gods they've made up for themselves because they don't want the real one. False gods like Baal or Zeus or Poseidon in the ancient worlds or today with Allah in Krishna or Buddha or any of the false Jesuses of the cults. And you can see how devoted people are to them, how they worship them by, by what they're willing to put themselves through in worship of them. Terrible things, harsh things to prove yourself to a lie that's been made up. I visited the mosque at, um, at, uh, at Auburn, the Gallipoli Mosque, and uh, the tour guide was telling us that you could tell that Islam is the only true religion and that Allah is the only true God because when you go through the five days, five times a day bowing and praying, you have to use every single muscle in your body. And only God would have thought that up. Only, no, only man would have thought that up, right? The real God's not impressed by it. And in fact, you use every muscle in eating as well. That's not worth it. You use it in everything because your body's just constantly moving. But it's more than just man-made gods, isn't it? There's greed, which Paul calls idolatry in both Ephesians 5 verse 5 and Colossians 3 verse 5. Why is greed idolatry? Why is greed, whether it's for money or for the things that money buys, a form of worship? Because it's a devotion to something other than God, which becomes the driving ambition for life. It's what people live for. It's what they want above all else. It's what they think can save them. Here is something they will sacrifice for and put their trust in and devote themselves to the pursuit of the dollar. But even more basic false worship than that, which we see all around us, is the worship of self. That's the biggest form of false worship around us. You hear it in the ads. You are number one. The most important person in the world is you. You deserve it. 
You hear it in the, the New Age lies which have been popularised through the pop psychology and through Oprah, who's like the biggest proponent of the secret, you know, that you shape reality by how you think, right? You, so think positive thoughts and positive things are going to happen to you, right? But you think negative thoughts, bad stuff's going to happen to you. You're, you're a creator, uh, you see it in the, the culture wars over whether people should be free to decide anything and everything about their lives, about their bodies, without any reference to any other people or to reality or the impact. You just do you. That's the worship of self, the ultimate kind of false worship, which was there from the beginning. The serpent said to Eve, you can be like God. And it's so appealing, isn't it? Who wouldn't want to be their own God so that they could worship themselves? It's, but it's so stupid. Because if, you've got, if you're your false God, if you are your own God, well, that's a pretty weak God. And it's destructive. You worship something that's not the real God and you're doomed to failure and disappointment because a false God cannot deliver on the false promises it makes of joy of satisfaction, of life, it's going to fail. But worse than that, that false worship of the wrong things, it alienates us from the true and living God and it leads to destruction because God hates that kind of false worship. He hates it for the spiritual harm it does to the worshipper. Uh, bad theology always leads to harm, but also because it steals from him what's rightfully his, all glory, honour, and praise, for he is the maker. He is the saviour. He is the king. He's the lover of our souls. 1 Timothy 1.17, to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. But there's also another type of false worship, which is the wrong worship of the true God. Right, You can worship the wrong things, and that's false worship, but you can also worship the true God the wrong way. Uh, and that's, uh, that's when religion uh, and looking pious replaces a true heart that wants to love and serve God. When there's an outward conformance to Christianity and to the kind of the, the religious side of it, but there's no inner reality to it. And God hates that one just as much as the other. Remember the words of the prophet that Jesus quotes in Mark 7, their worship of me is in vain, for they honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. I don't know if you know the term, lip service. Uh, you know that one? You know, lip, someone pays lip service to something, to the government, to whatever. Uh, it's when someone declares allegiance to something, but then doesn't back it up by their way of life. Well, the, the word service in lip service is just an old-fashioned English word which is worship. It's lip worship. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. When you say you love God and you put on a front for all to see, but it's just pretend. It's lip service. It's lip worship. It's false worship. And God sees straight through it. He's never fooled. So if we're going to start... Uh, afresh uh, in worship as a church, we really don't want to be confused worshippers and we certainly don't want to be false worshippers, 
So what's true worship and what does that look like? And I want to take us to that reading in Romans 12 to see it there because it really gets to the heart of what true worship is. If you haven't got it there, it's page 1006 in your pew Bibles there uh, and worth following along. Uh, make sure, like Dave says, that what I'm saying is what God thinks, not just what Joe's making up. Page 1006, Romans 12, begins, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. In the old few Bibles, the NIVs, this is your spiritual act of worship. Now, notice several things about this true worship, just from that sentence. Notice, first of all, true worship is a response. See it? What's this true worship offered in view of? Let's, make, let's not make it rhetorical. What, what, what is this? How, what, in view of what do you offer true worship? The mercies of God. Yeah, it comes from understanding how great God is towards us. And, and it's why thankfulness, gratitude towards him is a non-negotiable in the scriptures Give thanks to God in all circumstances. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus in 1 Thessalonians 5. Gladly offering our worship to him because of the benefits we receive from him and continue to receive and will receive from him. And and there are so many mercies he has given us when you stop and think about it. And and I'm just getting some of these from from the book of Romans in view of his mercy in making you in the first place and, and giving you everything that you have in life. All the friends, all the, the, the finances you have, the roof over your head, the food every day. Do you remember that everything you have in life comes from God? It's his gift. In view of his mercy in snatching you from the jaws of hell where you were heading and deserved because you'd ignored him. But in his mercy he'd offered up his son as an atoning sacrifice to pay for our sins so you can have peace with God. Forgiveness for your sins, a new life with him. In view of his presence with you by his Holy Spirit, by which he welcomes you as his child, you can call God Father because his Spirit is with you, calling God Father. And by which he pours out his love into our hearts. All right? And enables the Spirit enables you to uh, respond genuinely and gratefully to him. In view of his mercies, in giving you a sure and certain hope of a future in glory, which the sufferings of this life cause us to groan and long for and through which he shapes and moulds us, even that's a mercy of God. In view of the mercy of his promises that he'll never leave us or forsake us, that nothing can stand in the way of his love, neither height nor depth or angels or demons or life, death, nothing in creation can separate us from the love of God. It's unbreakable. It's unstoppable. It's unshakable love. In view of his mercy in putting other people in our lives who, who came with their beautiful feet to give us the gospel message. They got over the embarrassment and they were praying for you and they thought, oh, I need to tell them about Jesus. And they did. That's a mercy. 
in view of all of these incredible mercies, which he's generously poured out in love and kindness, offer yourselves to him. But notice, second, what, what this verse tells us true worship is. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. True worship is not something that happens at special times in special places. It's not limited to to religious-looking activities. It's not singing when you happen to think of doing that or when you're made to do it because the video comes on and they say, repeat the last three, you know, two verses. (laughs) Worship, true worship is to offer every day and every part of your life to God. It's It's a life offered to God for his glory. You think of the image that he uses there of uh, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. When you think about it, it's kind of bizarre, isn't it? In the Old Testament, there's one thing you can be sure about the animals that were sacrificed. They weren't coming back alive, right? They were dead. You know, throat cut, blood poured out, burnt to crisp, right? Can't get more dead. And so a living sacrifice, that's, that's kind of strange. But I think it's a brilliantly vivid way of describing what he's talking about. True worship is, is dying to self. It's taking up your cross. It's, it's living for him, living for his pleasure, for his glory, his purposes. It's about saying to God, here I am. What do you want with me today? What do you want with me tomorrow and next week and next year and God willing in 30, 40 years time? How can my every moment bring you joy and pleasure and glory because I'm yours. True worship is its really the difference between bacon and eggs. The difference between bacon and eggs, the difference is the chicken's involved, but the pig's committed. <laughs> the chicken makes a contra- token contribution to breakfast. The pigs all in. <laughs> Where to be bacon, full commitment. All right, 24-7, 360 degrees. King David says in Psalm 34, I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Paul says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Every part of your life, even eating, is worship when you do it for the praise, glory, and pleasure of God. Martin Luther once said, a dairymaid can milk cows to the glory of God. And you think, yeah, how is that even possible? How do you do your job, eat dinner, play soccer, watch TV, milk a cow to the glory of God? Well, you do it by doing everything as if you're doing it for the Lord Jesus Christ and by carrying on a continual conversation with him while you're doing it. That's the secret of true worship, thinking, will this please him? Asking him, is this going to please you? Will it honour him? Is this what he wants me to be doing at the moment? Is it going to bring pressure to him? Because that's what I want my life and every part of it to do. That's the heart of true worship. But notice there's a third part, a third aspect of true worship. It's in the next verse, in verse 2. And that is true worship always goes against the flow. And it requires a continual refocus of our mind towards God because it's so anti 
you know, what we're used to. Against the flow, verse 2, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing and perfect will of God. Worship, whether it's true worship or false worship, it always begins in your mind. And everything is a battle for the mind. The world wants you and it is going to keep coming at you and trying to persuade you and seduce you to its desires. It's a slobbering monster that wants to gobble you up and make you its own. And if it can't seduce you, it'll yell at you and beat you into submission. Carrot and stick. And so the life of true worship comes from a renewed mind that says, no, I've got to think about what I'm being asked of me by the world. I'm going to think about what does God want from me? And so what are you filling your mind with? What are you saturating your senses with? As the old saying goes, you put garbage in, you get garbage out. You spend your whole life filling your mind with drivel, whether it's TV drivel, Facebook, Mills and Boone, tabloids, fantasy novels, crime stories, phone apps. You know, if, if that's what you immerse yourself in and dwell on every moment and find titillation by, is it going to be any wonder that you struggle to, to do life to the glory of God? Or if every moment of your day you fill your mind with daydreams and fantasies about the ocean breeze, about the ski trip or the, the man or woman working opposite in the office or the next fishing trip, planning every minute detail of your retirement life, if that's where you find your mind is all the time, again, is it going to be a surprise if you struggle to live as a Christian? Now, I'm not saying don't ever indulge in any of those things and don't ever read or watch TV or play on your phone or plan your fishing trip or your retirement, but many of us are just soaking in those things so that that's all we're doing with every spare moment and we're doing it totally uncritically, slurping up the lies, the dreams, the mirage. And that's all it is, a mirage. So when you do watch them and when you do dream, at least apply your Christian mind to it. When you're watching your favourite show, you should be asking, what is the gospel that this is preaching to me? What are they saying that I need? What are they trying to make me feel? How do they want to make me think other than God's ways? Is it promoting a life that's pleasing to my heavenly father? Or is it trying to subtly get me to deny my Christian convictions? And when you see an ad, think, what is the hope that this thing is offering? What is the salvation that they're offering me? It's amazing the power of a persistent, subtle message. It's a battle for the mind. But there's a fourth thing to notice from Romans 12 about true worship. It's offered in view of God's mercies. It's a life lived for God as a living sacrifice for his pleasure. It's a battle, it's a, it goes against the world and against the flow and has a discerning mind that soaks in God's ways. But finally, he says it overflows in our corporate life together. It overflows into church. This true worship is something we do together. Not just when we meet on Sundays, but this is our life together. And you can see that as he goes on to the rest of the chapter to talk about using your gifts and as part of the body. 
as he goes on to talk about how we view each other as fellow believers and, and how we belong to each other and how we don't just bear with each other, but we love each other and forgive each other and encourage each other and we pray together and reach out to the world with his saving grace together. We're going to be drilling down on those things over the next few weeks, so I won't dwell on them now. But what's so remarkable is that as the church does that, it becomes more and more a testimony to the greatness and wonder and the kindness and the love and the patience and the goodness of God. Do you know why the church exists? Not just this church, but the church in general. Churches. What? Why? Why does God want them? Why does he want us? Why did he make us? The church is God's testimony to the universe, to the world, to the spiritual realm of his glory and his wisdom. In Ephesians 3, Paul talks about how the gospel draws in sorts of all sorts of weird and wonderful people and you look around and you man, there's pretty strange ones here. No, especially those other services. Oh, man. Um, people who were dead in their sins and transgressions, people who were strangers to one another, people who, well, they, they were insiders, they were outsiders, but he drew them all together. And he says this in 3 verse 10, This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. That's why we exist. That's why we're here. That's why this church is here, to declare God's wisdom and his glory and his brilliance to everyone. And he prays in the end in verse 21 that God would get all the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Yeah, I mean, you see it elsewhere. Peter says the same thing. How, why? 1 Peter 2, you've been made a holy, a chosen people, a holy nation, a people belonging to priesthood of believers, that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. And so as we come out of hibernation and we start to stretch our spiritual muscles again and uh, a bit wobbly, let's commit ourselves to being or to having a fresh start as a church of true worshippers. Are we going to be bacon or eggs? Which one are you? And what are we going to be together? Let's commit ourselves to God. In the words of our second reading, our great and precious God, I pray that you might grant us, according to the riches of your glory, to be strengthened with power in our innermost being through your spirit and that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. I pray that as we're rooted and firmly established in love, that we may be able to comprehend with all your people down through the ages how long and wide and high and deep is your love, O God, and that we may know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that we may be filled with the fullness of God. And to you, our Father, who is able to do far above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, To you be all glory in the church and in Christ Jesus in all generations forever and ever. Amen.